Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello, I'm David Hepworth. In this special Word podcast, I've been talking to Sean Willents, the author of a new book called Bob Dylan in America, which is extracted in the current issue of Word. He's not your average rock author, being the Sidney and Ruth Lapidus Professor of History at Princeton University, which is a cut above your local polytechnic and the author of such volumes as The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln. This is the first time he's written about music in a book, but as he explained to me when he spoke on the phone from Los Angeles, he has family roots in New York's Bohemian Society from way back. My father and his brother um, owned a bookshop in New York City in Greenwich Village, the corner of 8th Street and McDougal which um, at that time was the kind of crossroads for the downtown literary world. Um, uh, the beat writers, but many, many more, uh, everybody from James Baldwin to, I don't know, uh, Norman Mailer. I mean, this, this was the happening place for that, that um, cohort of, of literati, and, uh, and, and indeed some of the older village bohemians as well. Um, but down the block, um, down the Google Street, was where the folk revival was happening um, in and around... Uh, Easy Young's uh, Folklore Center and various clubs and so forth. So I grew up in this world of um, great creativity at a very interesting, uh, interesting is the least of it, um, understatement, um, a very exciting, explosive time. Um, and um, I, the, the only problem was that I thought it was normal. <laughs> I mean, I thought this was what American life was like. Well, it, of course it wasn't. Um, but I was just lucky enough to be born into it. And uh, the connection with Dylan was only that, you know, his name was being talked about. I mean, he was the hot young folk singer on the block. We didn't think he was going to become a... Who knew what, where he was going to be headed in terms of his own ambitions and in terms of his own talents. Uh, but he was there, indeed, um, in 1963, late in 1963, um, Bob Dylan met Allen Ginsberg, the great beat poet, in my uncle's apartment above the bookshop. So I've had a connection to this since I was a little kid. Do you remember the first time you heard him? 
Well, the first time I heard his music, um, I, you know, my, my mother always insisted that we lived in Brooklyn. So I lived in Brooklyn, which is just across the river from, from, from you know, downtown Manhattan. And in my little church group, a, uh, a girl told me, I brought in a copy of Free Will and Bob Dylan as if it were, you know, um, um, another book of the Bible. This is a Unitarian church, so it was really very liberal. But um, <laughs> we, um, she, she very reverentially, reverentially played it. And uh, as far as I remember, that's the first time I ever heard any Bob Dylan um, music. Um, but, you know, it, it was certainly around. And uh, I first heard a concert uh, in 1964. Um, at Philharmonic Hall, which I write about in the book as well. Who killed Davy Moore? Why and what's the reason for? Not I, said the referee. Don't point your finger at me. I could have stopped it in the eighth and maybe kept him from his fate, but the crowd would have booed, I'm sure, at not getting their money's worth. It's too bad that he had to go, but there was pressure on me too, you know. It wasn't me that made him fall. No, you can't blame me at all. Who killed Davy Moore? Why and what's the reason for? Yes, you write about, you make a very good point in the book. You say he's singing songs of the working man, yet most of the people in the audience had never yeah. done a day's work in their lives. <laughs> well, that was not, Well, it was also, there were political songs about the civil rights movement, and this is, you know, the kind of glory days of the civil rights movement. So, we, so a lot of people there, I, I want to try and capture that in the book. I mean, there's some... Thing, there's some folly about being a 13-year-old, and especially in that world where we were very smug and very uh, self-assured, and we thought that we had politics down straight. We thought that we were more sensitive than anybody else. We thought we were it, all the time anxiously trying to get as close to the edge of what really was hip as we possibly could. So, you know, I wanted to try and get that in, 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 into the book, because it, listening to those tapes again brought that back with a certain amount of amusement, a little bit of pain, <laughs> I have to admit. But, um, but, you know, I wanted to get that in there, too, because it, it, it shows itself up on the, on the tape and in the concert very, very clearly. Uh, what do you mean, well, how does it show itself up? Well, it shows itself up because, you know, he sings certain songs and people cheer right away. He sings a, a political song about a boxer who died. And even though he makes it clear in his own kind of irreverent, somewhat um, smoky remarks, shall I put it that way, um, you know, that, that he kind of thinks he's grown beyond it. He thinks it's kind of silly. But there's a kind of, you know, um, solemnity to the way that some of the stuff is, is, is received, as if it was, you know, a political speech rather than a, a song in a concert hall. Um, you know, that solemnity was kind of, what should we say, um, precious. Um, um, and, but it's there. Um, at the same time, there's a, there's a youthful badinage back and forth. Uh, it's as if he's in one of the folk clubs downtown rather than in August New Philharmonic Hall. And that's more enthusiastic. I mean, that's more... Um, you know the joyous, the joy of the moment comes across as well. So I want to, you know, all of these things were happening at the same time. Plus, this is a concert where you know Dylan sang for the first time, certainly in New York, um, songs like Gates of Eden and It's All Right, Mom, Only Bleeding. I mean, songs that were a real departure from the um, old Woody Guthrie-esque, um, or even the somewhat later uh, impressionistic songs of Love and Loss. These were songs that were you know, poetic at a very high level, and at least for folk music, and um, it would take us a long time to get used to, but we were just bowled over by them. Now, you spent most of your career um, 
in in universities. You're a professor of history at Princeton, and you've mm-hmm. you've written about American history. Uh, mm-hmm. What made you start writing about Bob Dylan? Well, Bob Dylan is part of American history. I mean, in some ways, in many ways, um, um, it's just that it's contemporary. And I've been writing actually more about fairly recent political um, history, um, beginning with Watergate. So I didn't seem quite so distant from me. I, I, you know, I, I describe my job as reading dead people's mail, and uh, you know that's mostly what I've been doing in the past. But then I started writing about live people. But you're right, David. I mean, there's a, there's a real switch in in terms of writing about a cultural figure and a musical figure and someone who's meant a lot to me uh, personally, rather than writing about Andrew Jackson or Abraham Lincoln, uh, who means a lot to me, but in a different way. Um, I think what tripped it off, well, I mean, it was just biographical. I mean, there's that older association that I was talking about with my family and my family's bookshop. Um, But then I kind of reconnected myself with Dylan's work, um, having drifted away um, in the 80s when I think his work had a barren patch. um, I reconnected to it um, through, um, um, well, my father was dying, and um, there was a song on an acoustic record called, uh, the the name of the song is Lone Pilgrim, and that meant a lot to me, and I started to reconnect then. Where the long pilgrim lay And then Sibley stood By his tomb When in A low whisper I heard Something say How sweetly I sleep here Alone the tempest may howl and the loud thunder roar. And then a dear, dear friend um, took me to a concert in Virginia, and I heard him in concert for the first time since, I don't know, 1975, and I found that was terrific. And so I found myself reconnecting with his work. Then I was asked to write a piece for uh, his website um, about a new album um, that I had no title at that point. It was eventually called Love and Theft which is, I think, one of his really great albums um, for his entire career. And so I wrote about that and discovered things I thought about the quality of the music there and what he was doing that was different. And it all kind of, you know, evolved. Um, And I was doing this as a kind of moonlight thing. I made up the title of Historian in Residence of the website because the idea of having a a home office in cyberspace um, kind of um, delighted me a little. Um, It was an in-joke. But I kept writing for the site, and... Um, decided, well, you know, this really does mean a lot to me, and I've got to get it out of my system. But I have a lot more to figure out and a lot more to write. I didn't want it just to be a, a collection of, you know, my little essays for the for the website. So um, a couple of years ago, I just decided to, to, to do it in earnest, and uh, that's that's how it happened. Uh, but I, you know, I don't see it as different, really, from 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 what I've been doing before, if only because I'm asking historical questions. I mean, I'm asking questions that an historian would ask. Of Bob Dylan's work, unlike, for example, um, a man I admire, a scholar I admire very much, Christopher Ricks, who wrote a book on Dylan's uh, called uh, Dylan's Visions of Sin. That's very much the, 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 the writing of a literary critic, of a literary scholar, someone who does very close readings of, of, of Dylan's lyrics. I, I, I can't do that. I mean, I, I, I write about the lyrics, but not with the kind of playful, close reading that Christopher can give them. Um, 
Um, so, so I ask a different set of questions, but but I ask the same, those questions, and they're not completely unlike the questions I ask about, you know, Walt Whitman or um, you know others I've written about in the past. So yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is it the intention of this this book to place Bob Dylan in a in a broader, wider cultural context? We can talk about people like Whitman and 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 what kind of figures are you trying to put him alongside? Well, that's exactly right. That, it is what I'm trying to do. It's not so much that I'm trying to rank him or place him in, in, in terms of greatness, although I do think that he deserves, and I think he'll be read and listened to 100, 200 years from now. Um, you know, he's, he's both Keats and Yeats at the same time in some ways. Um, but I, 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 there were, Dylan's work grows out of, and consciously and unconsciously in some ways, <clears throat> many different circuits in American culture, some of which he's very, very aware of, some of which I don't think anybody could have been aware of um, until the, you know, someone came along to do the, to, to, to do the research. And um, it's, it's in establishing those connections, um, some of which are ancient, go back to, I mean, very, very old, you know, English, Scots, and Irish um, um, balladry, but also to things like, for example, that song that I mentioned earlier, The uh, Lone Pilgrim, actually began life in the 1830s and became part of what is the most venerable American hymnal in American, uh, 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 the most venerable hymnal in American religious life, the Sacred Harp. And um, telling the story of how that hymn came to be, how it got changed over time, how it ended up in Dylan's, uh, on Dylan's album, in the way that Dylan performed it, I think tells us something about America, about the, the, the cultural progress or the, the, the web of cultural influence, but also tells us something about Dylan and um, what he's picking up on and what he does to a song when he goes about making it his own, which is really what he does. So I, I don't think you can understand Bob Dylan without understanding America uh, or more about America, and I think you learn a lot about America by understanding Bob Dylan. Now, you haven't tried to do the whole of his career, uh, right. You've chosen various periods, various subjects. How did you choose which ones to highlight? Well, you know, things, there were things that I thought were important. That's number one. Um, now, understand, I, I purposely didn't write as much as I might have on what I think is still his most fruitful period, his extraordinary period between 1963-64 and his motorcycle accident in 1966. I mean, I think the albums that came out then those four records, Another Side, Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61, and Blonde on Blonde, are unsurpassed. Um, and I did, But I didn't write as much about those as I might have, precisely because other people have. Um, and I didn't want to go over material that other people had done, because they'd done it very well, and I didn't necessarily have much to add. Whereas re- relatively little has been written about everything from, say, the Christian albums in the late 1970s onward. Um, I mean, there are all people like, like Clinton Halen who have written about everything, which, which is great, and uh, it was very valuable to me, actually. But, um, but relatively little, and trying to understand that in historical context, which is a pity because it's precisely that later work, including his, his and I, not just the songs, but including Chronicles, his memoir, which are so deeply you know, immersed in American history and American culture, so that I think an historian has more to say about that, perhaps, than, than even the earlier stuff. So there was a certain imbalance, but I, but I, and I did that consciously. But, you know, there were, there, were, there were concerts that I went to that I used as a kind of plumb line, um, the Philharmonic concert in, in October 1964, uh, one of the Rolling Thunder Review concerts in 1975. I, didn't wanna, I, I, I couldn't have written the book without having a certain amount of personal element in there. 
Uh, I guess because I had such a personal connection, but I didn't want to make it into an obnoxious, you know, I was there and you weren't kind of thing. I mean, you know, I, that, that gets boring very quickly. Um, but rather, I try to use them, as I say, plumb lines into understanding his art over a, a wider um, terrain than just that particular concert. Um, and so, but I chose things that I, that I found to be important, and uh, they include the song Blind Willie McTell, which I think is maybe his greatest song in the 80s and 90s and after. Um, um, I chose things like uh, his radio show, which uh, are quirky. They're, they're offbeat, but I, wanted, but I think they actually have something to tell us something about his art in general. Um, really, I, I picked things that I, that, that I found important and compelling and um, <clears throat> left out things that I, that I perhaps uh, didn't find so compelling and important. Now, you did a chapter about the Blonde on Blonde sessions, which we published yeah. an extract from in the current issue of Word. Um, and, and you did that from listening to the session tapes, presumably. Right. So right. What's, what surprised you most about, about hearing the way that record came together? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And, and I actually got access to some of the manuscripts as well, um, of the lyrics that were written, um, some of them on, on stationery from the, you know, the motel in, in Nashville. Um, well, what was surprising? Um, first of all, it was surprising to discover that not everybody who, got, um, who played on the album actually got credit for the album, and that was a little bit of detective work. And I discovered that, I mean, we had known that a couple hadn't been, but Rick Danko from the band, or the Hawks and then the band, actually plays on one of the tracks that was recorded in New York rather than in Nashville. Um, but, you know, I think, I think what I was able to hear, well, two things. One is these sessions have attained a kind of mythical quality among um, um, Dylan aficionados, Dylan fans. Um, and I wanted to try and take that myth and make, them, make it more historical, you know, just what really did happen here. And as a, it turns out there's a fair amount of material about that quite apart from the session tapes. What the session tapes help, you, help me to do is to see how songs evolved in the studio. Um, you know, we hear the finished product. Um, we don't often see how um, how these things evolve, and they evolved from the page and then in on the studio um, in different kinds of ways. In some cases, he took forever to get a song right. A song like Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat goes through countless permutations before they finally hit it. When they did hit it on the very last take, on the very last day of recording, they hit it so perfectly um, that you could hear at the very end of the tape after they faded it out, one of the Nashville guitarists. Turns, uh, National Musicians turns to Robbie Robertson and says, Robbie, the whole world's going to marry you on that one. And <laughs> his, his lead was so great. Um, other songs were almost instant. Um, after he worked on the lyrics to Sad Eye Lady of the Lowlands for a very long time, he was there in the studio until four in the morning. Um, I'm working on them. Chris Christopherson has a wonderful description from doing that. Um, they do the song. I said, you know, it's an 11 minute song. They, do it, they did it in two takes. And what I what I just what I discovered there was that the mythical collision between you know hipster downtown New York City and virtuoso but country Nashville actually was more of an instant merging. I mean, these guys really had 
could figure out pretty early on for all of the cultural differences. Um, musically, they connected beautifully. And, Which uh, I think is something that people often underestimate about musicians, isn't it? You know, yeah. they don't bother about the baggage; they hear each other, don't they? Exactly. And 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 um, and, and I, one of the, I I don't usually do interviews, but I interviewed Al Cooper for this one, and he said that they were among the most wonderfully welcoming musicians that he does, he's ever worked with. Um, they didn't know who this weirdo Bob Dylan was, but they could hear what he had, what he what what music he was trying to do, and they got it, and they got it quickly. I was I was very amused by uh, by the fact that um, when they launched into the first version of Sad Eyed Lately, they, they didn't know it was going to go on that long. <laughs> well, yeah, they're they're used to doing three minute cuts, you know, and three four minute cuts. I mean, this is Nashville, you know, you churn them out, um, and there they are in the middle of verse four. Um, and you, you could hear beforehand one of the musicians saying, "Now it's it's three verses and a break, three verses, you know." And, and yes, that's what it is. And the drummer Kenny Buttry later said, "You know, we thought we had peaked five minutes ago." <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's but but boy, did it come out beautifully, didn't it? I mean, it's amazing. It certainly did. Now you mentioned Blind Willie Mc, Blind Willie McTell, and you've devoted a, a chapter to that song, uh, uh, a lot of which is about. Blind Willie McTell himself is right. a fascinating right. subject in himself, but right. the song isn't actually directly to do with him, is it? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, I was helped a lot by a wonderful biography by Michael Gray, um, um, Hearing My Traveling Shoes, about McTell. So McTell's story had been told uh, pretty, you know, exactly, and uh, that allowed me to retell the story in my own words, off of, off of what uh, Michael had had found. But then to understand that this is a song about the South. Um, um, I mean, that's obvious. It's a song about slavery. It's a song about the Southern American experience. Um, it's a song of cruelty. It's a song of biblical, um, um, you know, corruption, and um, as told in a biblical kind of way, of earthly corruption. And yet, and yet, at the end of every verse, um, there's this kind of grace note that um, nobody can sing the blues like Blind Willie McTell. And McTell kind of emerges from that song as a kind of something to hang on to, which the singer of the song hangs on to um, throughout the song, um, as something, I don't, I, I, I don't know if it's redemptive or not, but it's certainly um, beautiful. It's, 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 it's something of beauty in this corrupt world. I'm gazing at the window Of the saints Um, now, um, I want, and, and there are other similarities as well. I mean, McTell, when he says nobody can sing the blues like Blind Willie McTell, it doesn't mean that Willie McTell is the greatest blues singer there ever was. It means that nobody is quite like him. And although there were some who were sort of like him, um, McTell was very different from the standard um, image that I think you know all listeners have of 1920s and 1930s blues guys. I mean, he's not some desperate man in the countryside you know, singing about his pain and how terrible it is to be a black man in the south and all of that he's, he's, from, he's in Atlanta, he's based in Atlanta even though he's from the country he's, a, he's an entertainer, he's a songster he sings many different kinds of songs he sings the blues to be sure but he sings religious songs he sings pop songs he sings all kinds of stuff usually uh, often uh, taking other people's songs and making them up and uh, rearranging them and he says he, he jumps the songs from other singers and rearranges them his own way well that's not unlike what Dylan does mm -hmm. so you know the more I, 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 I studied uh, Brian William McTell the more I saw an affinity 
And I'm not sure how much Dylan understood that at the time that he was writing the song, but that's not what I'm interested in doing. I'm interested in finding you know, connections and circuits that may be conscious and may not be. Now, you, you touch on the fact that um, the lyrics, or some of the lyrics on Love and Theft, seem to owe a lot to a, a memoir of a Japanese gangster. Yeah, right. This is something that, that uh, presumably would have remained secret in the days before Google made it quite right. easy to find these kind of things. Right. What, right. What do you, and this is not the first case in Bob Dylan's career, you know, where he's clearly just taken something. You know, right. what, what do you think about his appropriation of material from other sources and what it tells you about how he works? Right. Well, I think two things, David. I mean, at one level, this is perfectly in keeping with um, what Pete Seeger called the folk process. I mean, people are always listening to things, hearing things, stealing them, and then making them um, new. Um, and Dylan was accused of plagiarism as early as the you know, 1960s. Um, when it usually turned out that the people who accused him of plagiarism had actually plagiarized the songs themselves <laughs> from somebody else. Uh, or uh, plagiarized isn't the right word, just, you know, lifted, appropriated, but made it new. I mean, this is what the modernist poets were always saying, right? Elliot and Pound and those guys. You know, um, um, immature poets, uh, what's the line of Elliot's? Immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. Um, well, there's something to that in, in, in Dylan's work as well. It has become, though, much denser, I think, in, in, in recent years, in the last decade or so, than it was before. Um, the numbers and, and, and the sophistication of the uh, borrowings have, have increased. I mean, yes, he's taking stuff from a Japanese gangster uh, book, but he's also taking stuff from Juvenile and from Ovid, um, let alone from you know Papa Charlie Jackson, the kind of risque medicine show uh, singer from the 20s. I mean, he's all over the map because he's all over the map. Um, but, you know, in, in each case... He takes these words, these phrases, these tunes, these riffs, and makes them something new. Um, you know, following Pound's dictum, Ezra Pound's dictum, make it new. Well, he made it. He makes it all new, so that you know he, he'll have a line about a feudal lord um, um, in one of his songs on love and theft, um, and it has nothing to do with you know the Japanese feudalist system. <laughs> the feudal system. Um, um, and it has nothing to do with Japanese gangsters in you know Tokyo in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and so on, around for our own time. But it, it fits what he wanted to say um, about a very different kind of setting. So, you know, this is this is this is this is his modern minstrel style, as I call it. And uh, I think that you know there have been accusations that he's plagiarizing. Uh, it, it's the furthest thing from that. Um, it's 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 reinventing. It's not all coming out of his head completely pristine. But then, what poetry ever does? Now he's been writing songs now for very nearly fifty years, yep. uh, which is a long time in 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 anybody's life, uh, particularly for a rock singer or a folk singer or a pop singer. Right. How does his output compare with other American artists who had it? Has a, is there anybody who has a similarly long working life in your experience? Not, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, the other greats, going back to Stephen Foster, I mean, Stephen Foster was you know, cut short, you know, 15 years maybe. Um, the other greats in the 20th century, um, you know, um, Gershwin, the Gershwin brothers, or Rodgers and Hammerstein, or, um, you know, um, I mean, Burke Backrack, I guess, has been around a long time. Stephen Sondheim has been around a long time. Um, but I don't think anybody has done so much. Uh, and in the rock world, it's unprecedented, I think. Um, 
you know, I mean, you do have the, the, the you know, um, I mean, Lennon and McCartney obviously was, was, was gunned down, half of it. Um, and um, you do have, you do have um, um, Mick and Keith, and, uh, you know, Mick and Keith are still churning stuff out, but not, I think, with the degree of, of what, uh, it will not, not, not as enduring as, as what Dylan does. I mean, it's kind of hard at age 65 get up and, and you can play it and you can sing it and you can get people really dancing hard when you play Satisfaction but it's a song about being young it's a young man's song um, Bob Dylan can get up and sing the times they are changing as a 69 year old guy and it's a different song I mean he sings it, in, it, was a, it has a poignance which is very different from the anthem like uh, you know uh, original meanings attached to it so I think that Dylan's work, um, you know, will 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 live, and I, I think it's incomparable. I do think he's the greatest American songwriter um, of, of the, the late 20th century, anyway, and certainly me, you know, my generation's greatest poet. I want to rise up, rising night and day, all the gold and silver being stolen away. Picture Turner looking east and west from the dark room of his mind. He made to Kansas City, 12th Street and 5, nothing standing there. I want to hear the word. I want to rise in a shacks I sliding down. Dylan in America by Sean Willens is published by the Bodley Head. As ever, if you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk, where you should find yourself in the company of like minds. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider træt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.